Thank you for joining us for Financial News. Articles read for this weekly program are selected from financial publications, including Bloomberg News, Forbes, Fortune, CNBC, New York Times, The Washington Post, The Financial Times, and other publications. My name is Michael Amy. This article is posted to CNBC. The title, Retail Sales Jump 3% in January, Smashing Expectations Despite Inflation Increase. This was published on Wednesday, February 15th by Jeff Cox. Here are the key points. Retail sales rose 3% in January, easily topping 1.9% Dow Jones estimate, the Commerce Department reported on Wednesday. The numbers are not adjusted for inflation, meaning that consumers outpaced the 0.5% inflation rate for the month. Food service and drinking places, motor vehicle and parts dealers, and furniture stores led the sales increases. Here's the story. Sales at retailers rose far more than expected in January as consumers persevered despite rising inflation pressures. Advanced retail sales for the month increased 3% compared with expectations for a rise of 1.9%, the Commerce Department reported Wednesday. Excluding autos, sales rose 2.3%, according to the report, which is not adjusted for inflation. The ex-autos estimate was for a gain of 0.9%. Food services and drinking places surged 7.2% to lead all major categories. Motor vehicle and parts dealers increased 5.9%, while furniture and home furnishing stores saw a rise of 4.4%. Even with a 2.4% increase in gas prices, receipts at service stations were flat, Online retailers saw a rise of 1.3%, while electronics and appliances stores increased 3.5%. No categories saw a decline following a December in which sales fell 1.1%. On a year-over-year basis, retail sales increased 6.4%, which was exactly in line with the Consumer Price Index move reported on Tuesday. Markets moved lower after the news, with major indexes slightly lower in morning trade. Other economic news Wednesday showed that industrial production was flat in January compared to the estimate of 0.4% gain, according to Fed data. While manufacturing input rose 1% and mining production increased 2%, utilities declined 9.9%, likely owing to an unseasonably warm beginning to the year. Also, capacity utilization declined 0.1 percentage points to 78.3%, below the 79% estimate. The monthly reports on industrial production, retail sales, and jobs were generally better than expected and point to a pickup in economic activity in early 2023 after a soft patch in late 2022. The Fed will read recent activity reports as supporting plans for additional interest rate increases in the first half of this year, said Bill Adams, chief economist at Comerica Bank. Inflation, as gauged by the Consumer Price Index, accelerated by 0.5% in the first month of the year, the Labor Department announced Tuesday. The sales report indicates 
that even with elevated inflation pressures, consumers continue to spend. The data comes as the Federal Reserve is grappling with rising prices that appear to be abating, but are still well ahead of the central bank's 2% annual target. Several Fed officials spoke Tuesday, each indicating that while they see some progress being made, there's still more work to do. I'm confident that the gears of monetary policy will continue to move in a way that will bring inflation down to 2%. We will stay the course until our job is done, New York Fed President John Williams said. Markets currently expect the Fed to approve quarterly percentage point interest rate hikes at each of its next two meetings, then pause to assess the impact that monetary policy moves have had on inflation, the labor market, and broader economic growth. Consumer spending makes up about two-thirds of all economic activity in the U.S., Fed rate increases are aimed at reducing demand as supply tries to catch up and to hit rate-sensitive sectors such as housing, which saw a boom during the COVID pandemic. There is evidence that the increases are having an impact, though inflation remains persistent and could be aggravated by the economic reopening in China and rebounding growth across Europe. And the title of that retail sales jumped 3% in January, smashing expectations despite inflation increase. This article is posted to CNBC. The title, Wholesale Prices, rose 0.7% in January, more than expected fueling inflation increase. This written by Jeff Cox was posted on Thursday, February 16, 2023. Key points, the producer price index rose 0.7% in January, higher than the 0.4% estimate. Excluding food and energy, core PPI increased 0.5% compared with expectations for a 0.3% increase. In other economic data, jobless claims edged lower to 194,000, below the estimate for 200,000. Also, the Philadelphia Fed's manufacturing index plunged to minus 24.3%, far beneath the minus 7.8 estimate. Inflation rebounded in January at the wholesale level as producer prices rose more than expected to start the year, the Labor Department reported Thursday. The producer price index, a measure of what raw goods fetch on the open market, rose 0.7% for the month, the biggest increase since June. Economists surveyed by Dow Jones had been looking for a rise of 0.4% after a decline of 0.2% in December. Excluding food and energy, the core PPI increased 0.5% compared with expectations for a 0.3% increase. Core, excluding trade services, climbed 0.6% against the estimate for 0.2% rise. On a 12-month basis, headline PPI increased 6%, still elevated but well off its 11.6% peak in March of 2022 Markets fell following the release, with futures tied to the Dow Jones Industrial Average down about 200 points. While the PPI isn't as closely followed as some other inflation metrics, it can be a leading indicator as it measures the first price producers get on the open market. PPI increase 
coincided with a 0.5% jump in the January Consumer Price Index, which measures the prices consumers pay for goods and services. Together, the metrics show that while inflation appeared to be subsiding, As 2022 came to a close, it started the year off with a pop. Economists are attributing the January inflation increase primarily to some seasonal factors as well as payback from previous months that showed more muted price rises. An unseasonably warm winter may have played some part as well, while fuel prices, which are volatile, also jumped during the month. A report Wednesday showed that consumer spending more than kept pace with inflation as retail sales increased 3% for the month and were up 6.4% from a year ago. In other economic data Thursday, the Labor Department reported that jobless claims edged lower to 194,000, a decline of 1,000 and below the Dow Jones estimate of 4,200,000. Also, the Philadelphia Federal Reserve's manufacturing index for February plunged to minus 24.3, well below the minus 7.8 estimate. Fed policymakers are focusing intently on inflation, so the January numbers are unlikely to sway them from their stance that while progress is being made, no let-up is likely. My expectation is that we will see a meaningful improvement in inflation this year and further improvement over the following year with inflation reaching our 2% goal in 2025, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester said in a speech on Thursday morning, but my outlook is contingent on appropriate monetary policy. Markets expect the Fed to increase interest rates a few more times this year, according to CME Group data, with the final or terminal rate ending around a range of 5.25% to 5.5% from its current 4.5% to 4.35%. The higher PPI readings came amid a 5% rise in energy costs, but a 1% decline in food. The final demand index for goods climbed 1.2%, the biggest one-month increase since June. About one-third of that rise came from the gasoline index, gaining 6.2%. The services index rose 0.4% pushed by a 0.6% increase in prices for final demand services, less trade, transportation, and warehousing. Another big factor came from a 1.4% advance in the index for hospital outpatient care. Again, the title of that from CNBC, Wholesale prices rose 0.7% in January, more than expected, fueling inflation increase. This article is posted to Fortune. Title is Nearly Half of People Who Joined the Great Resignation Last Year Beat Inflation with a Pay Bump. This was written by Jane Thier and posted on February 17, 2023. It's official. The grass is greener on the other side. This is an era when workers' time at companies is unprecedentedly short, and the job-hopping approach is being vindicated. Nearly half of workers who changed jobs last year were rewarded with a pay raise that exceeded not only their former salary, but the inflation rate. No less an authority than the central bank says it's true. 
Job hopping beat inflation for 49% of job switchers in 2022, according to a new Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta analysis. Among those who stayed loyal to their companies, only 42% got inflation-beating raises. The data comes from the Atlanta Fed's wage growth tracker, which tracks median change in hourly pay year over year. Based on the Fed's findings, workers should maybe consider how green their grass is. A skyrocketing cost of living spurred by 40-year high inflation rates caused many workers, real wages, or their incomes with the rate of inflation factored in to fall last year. The Fed's data shows this is clearly not the case for those who joined the Great Resignation or even for some of those who stayed behind. The Fed found that alongside job switchers, younger workers had a better chance of maintaining a salary at pace with inflation. Real wages grew last year for 38% of employees aged 55 and older, a 15% drop from 2019. Yet 60% of Gen Z workers aged 16 through 24 got an above-inflation raise last year. Across the board, the odds of getting a raise are better if you ask for one. Some experts even encourage reopening a salary conversation every six months. The data aligns with a September 2022 ADP report, which found through analysis of payroll data that the median job switcher last year nabbed a 16.1% raise, almost double the raise that quote-unquote loyal workers got. As a result, workers' newfound bargaining power led to a domino effect. Bosses who fell victim to the Great Resignation last year and wound up understaffed were likely to grant pay bumps and keep their talent around or offer significant salaries to applicants in hopes of filling their many open roles. That kept inflation running hot for much of the year, with companies upping prices to offset these heightened labor costs. Over the last six months, though, inflation has been cooling as the Great Resignation seems to wind down, but enough people are still on the job-hopping train to keep it at above average levels. Wages do not appear to be driving inflation in a 1970s-style wage price spiral, Fed Vice Chair Lael Brainerd said last month, adding that he sees tentative signs that wage growth is moderating. President Biden named Brainerd his top economic advisor at the National Economic Council earlier this week. Even though the job switchers came out on the top of the pile, the bigger picture remains pretty grim. The total share of workers whose real wage grew in 2022 was 12% lower than in 2019, proving that inflation has done a number on workers' paychecks across the board. That might suggest that no matter where you go, a job could wind up falling short of expectations, at least salary-wise. For many workers, that's meant picking up an entire second job to make ends meet. Experts call this overemployment. But think twice about two-timing your employer. Career coaches say you're better off continuing to job hunt until you land somewhere you believe you'll really love. There's a lot more understanding that you might have left because your employer was mishandling the pandemic or because they're stuck in outdated practices around remote work, career expert Allison Green told Fortune of job hopping last year. 
There's so much churn going on right now and so much power on the workers' side that hasn't been there traditionally that prospective employers are much more willing to overlook short stays than they might have been previously. All the more reason to start applying if you get the sense your current pay isn't matching your worth. As Vivian Tu, the equities trader turned TikToker, known as your rich BFF, put it, job hopping could be the best financial move you make this year. It's a lot easier to job hop every two years and get a 25% raise and then have that additional $10,000 It's in your salary than it is to try and get there by cutting out every penny off of your Netflix subscription, off that avocado toast or that Starbucks, she said. At a new higher-paying job, she told Fortune, you're just going to have a better life. Again, the title of that from Fortune, nearly half of people who joined the Great Resignation last year beat inflation with a pay bump. This article is posted to Bloomberg. The title is Airbnb's Record Week Adds $15 Billion in Value as Travel Booms. Its shares climbed 21% on the week to the highest level since May. Bookings show recovery to pre-pandemic levels, CEO Chesky says. This story was written by Janet Freund and posted on February 17, 2023. Strong travel demand drove a record rally in Airbnb Incorporated shares after it delivered its highest ever full year of profit and issued an optimistic outlook to begin 2023. The home-sharing company has climbed 21% this week, its biggest weekly gain since its 2020 initial public offering. The move has tacked on about $15 billion to Airbnb's market value, fueled by a first-quarter revenue forecast that was stronger than analysts anticipated. Chief Executive Officer Brian Chesky added to that optimism after saying travel bookings are showing a recovery to pre-pandemic levels. The rosier outlook also spurred at least 25 analysts to boost their 12-month price target on the stock since its February 14th earnings, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. The rebound in travel from the throes of the pandemic hasn't just boosted Airbnb. Shares of hotel giant Marriott International touched their highest level since April after reporting earnings on February 14th. The pent-up demand for travel continues to drive strong results for travel marketplaces such as Airbnb and Uber, as well as traditional hotel chains like Marriott and Hilton, said Bloomberg Intelligence analyst Mandeep Singh. Online travel bookings service TripAdvisors also posted better-than-expected quarterly results this week, though an initial bullish stock reaction was tempered by a lackluster outlook for margins in 2023. In Europe, Air France KLM closed 5.3% higher on Friday after reporting record quarterly revenue and saying it has turned the page on the pandemic. Investors have also been piling into airline stocks as several carriers forecast strong demand for the year, despite lingering threats from inflation and an impending recession. A gauge for the group, the S&P Super Composite Airlines Industry Index, has risen 18% this year. 
Cruise stocks have also been surging in 2023 on a recent recovery in bookings. And after three consecutive years of stock declines for big names in the sector, like Carnival and Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings, both company, along with Pier Royal Caribbean Cruises, have each climbed at least 40% so far this year. To be sure, most travel-related stocks in the United States, including Airbnb, are down on Friday. They're mirroring a broader decline in U.S. equity benchmarks as Federal Reserve officials in recent days hammered home their resolve to keep raising rates to crush inflation. While persistent inflation is a risk to discretionary travel spending, China outbound travel could be another positive catalyst for travel this year, Bloomberg Intelligence's Singh said. Again, the title, Airbnb's Record Week Adds $15 billion in Value as Travel Zooms. This article is posted to Fortune. The title is Long COVID is Hurting Workers' Finances, as new research shows those suffering it are more likely to be unemployed. This was written by Oriana Rosa Royal and posted on Monday, February 20th, 2023. For the past three years, COVID-19 has been wreaking havoc with businesses after the initial wave of disruption caused by global government mandates to work from home. Then came the seemingly constant absences caused by workers catching the virus. Despite the fact that most organizations have long reopened their doors for business and want to welcome employees back to the office, it seems that coronavirus has not got the memo. Each month, research shows that more than a million people have called in sick since the pandemic began. But for some professionals, their COVID symptoms are superseded the few days businesses set aside for being sick. Now, long COVID has its grip on America's workforce, and new research shows it's preventing many people suffering symptoms like brain fog months after being infected from going back to work altogether. The study, published in JAMA Network, examined more than 15,000 COVID-19 patients aged 18 to 69 years old across all 50 states of the United States and found that 15% reported having long COVID symptoms ranging from dizziness to shortness of breath. Of the 2,236 participants who reported experiencing long COVID symptoms, 12% were unemployed, compared with an unemployment rate of 9% for those who didn't. Even when the researchers adjusted for socio-demographic factors such as age, sex, region, and race and ethnicity, they found that long COVID was associated with a higher likelihood of being unemployed. Meanwhile, almost half of those experiencing long COVID symptoms complained about cognitive-related symptoms like brain fog or memory impairment, which was impacting their ability to work. The research's lead author, Roy Perlis, said that there's a tendency to dismiss these symptoms, but that the results suggest the cognitive symptoms are not only important because they're distressing to people, but they're also important because they have real implications in terms of function. And the findings are in line with Professor Danielle Sandismark's clinical experience at Penn Neuro COVID Clinic, who echoed that cognitive 
effects and fatigue are the primary reasons that I hear from patients as to why they are unable to return to their jobs. Cognitive symptoms, in particular, are not associated with an outward physical disability, but these data demonstrate that these symptoms are associated with a real work effect, like going back to work, she told Gemma. Cognitive symptoms, in particular, are not associated with an outward physical disability, but these data demonstrate that these symptoms are associated with a real-world effect, like going back to work, she told Gemma. A notable number of professionals exited the workforce following the pandemic with work-life balance, long social distancing, and searching for more meaning in life, cited as some of the many factors behind this trend. Yet a rather grim reality that the research highlights is that actually a sizable cohort of working professionals now consider themselves unfit to work in the aftermath of contracting coronavirus. Out of those who are currently unemployed due to the debilitating symptoms associated with long COVID, 40% were in full-time employment prior to the pandemic. In contrast, only 28% of the unemployed participants who aren't experiencing long COVID were employed pre-pandemic. And for the most part, long COVID sufferers want to return to work with almost 58% currently looking for work. The proportion of workers with long COVID who want to work but still finding themselves unemployed points to an imbalance, which the report suggests is down to workplaces not offering suitable adjustments for those with disabilities. But it's not all bad news. There are signs that long COVID may be on its way out, albeit slowly, A recent Kaiser Family Foundation report using data from the Household Pulse Survey, a collaboration between several U.S. federal agencies, found that the percentage of people who reported active long COVID symptoms has declined since June 2022 from 19% to 11% in January 2023. I certainly think that what we are seeing clinically is that most people who do have long COVID are getting better over time. Not always perfect, but better, Sandsmark agreed. Again, the title, Long COVID is Hurting Workers' Finances, as new research shows those suffering it are more likely to be unemployed. This article is posted to CNBC. The title, Consumer Debt Hits Record $16.9 trillion as Delinquencies Also Rise. This was published on Thursday, February 16, 2023. It was written by Jeff Cox. Here are the key points. Consumer debt across all categories totaled $16.9 trillion, up about $1.3 trillion from a year ago as balances rose across all major categories. Mortgages, auto loans, and credit card delinquencies all increased, though to still low levels. The rise in balances came amid an aggressive rate-hiking campaign by the Fed. Here's the story. Consumer debt hit a fresh record at the end of 2022, while delinquency rates rose for several types of loans, the New York Federal Reserve reported Thursday. Debt across all categories totaled $16.9 trillion, up about $1.3 trillion from a year ago, as balances rose across all major categories. 
Despite a decline in originations, mortgage balances increased to $11.9 trillion, up about $250 billion from the third quarter and about $1 trillion from a year ago. Originations for new home loans and refinancings fell to $498 billion, less than half where they were for quarter four in 2021 and a drop of about $135 billion from the third quarter. Mortgage loans considered in serious delinquency of 90 days or more rose to a rate of 0.57%, still low but nearly double where it was from the year prior. Auto loan debt delinquencies rose 0.6 percentage points to 2.2%, while credit card debt jumped 0.8 percentage points to 4%. Credit card balances grew robustly in the fourth quarter, while mortgage and auto loan balances grew at a more moderate pace, reflecting activity consistent with pre-pandemic levels, said Wilbert Vanderclaw, economic research advisor at the New York Fed. Although historically low unemployment has kept consumers' financial footing generally strong, Stubbornly high prices and climbing interest rates may be testing some borrowers' ability to repay their debt, he added. The rise in balances came amid an aggressive rate-hiking campaign from the Fed as it battled inflation running near its highest level in more than 41 years. The Fed raised its benchmark rate seven times during the year adding another increase in January that took the overnight borrowing rate to a target range of 4.5 to 4.75 percent. Included in that series were four consecutive increases of three-quarters of a percentage point, boosting rates for multiple consumer debt instruments such as credit cards, mortgages, and auto loans. Student loan debt also increased for the month after staying flat during much of the pandemic amid government-backed amnesty for borrowers. The total balance hit $1.6 trillion in the fourth quarter. Auto loan debt edged higher to $1.55 trillion, while credit card balances rose to just shy of $1 trillion. The explosion in consumer debt came amid an ongoing increase in federal government borrowing, Total U.S. government debt now stands near $31.5 trillion, which is up from $29.6 trillion at the end of 2022, according to Treasury Department data. Again, the title of that consumer debt hits record $16.9 trillion as delinquencies also rise. You're listening to Financial News, a weekly program with a focus on personal finance, retirement and estate planning, and the global economy. My name is Michael Amy. This article is posted to Fortune Magazine's blog titled Crypto by Jeff John Roberts. The title of the article, Regulators Kill a Key Stablecoin. U.S. regulators just killed a major stablecoin, what that means for the crypto industry. This was posted on February 14, 2023. Since the start of the year, the U.S. has been waging a war on crypto. 
It began on January 3rd when a trio of banking agencies issued a joint statement vowing to keep crypto away from the traditional financial system. That opening salvo was soon followed by a spate of Securities and Exchange Commission lawsuits, and this week the government's anti-crypto campaign hit a new level of intensity when the SEC and New York regulators dropped the hammer on a pillar of the industry, stablecoins. The blow came in the form of an order from the New York Department of Financial Services to Paxos, a little-known but important firm in the crypto world. Paxos has a variety of crypto-related businesses, but its bread and butter is stablecoins. Its own coin, called Pax, and that's spelled P-A-X, and those it issues under the name of other companies, including global giant Binance. The New York order did not force Paxos to shut down, but did require it to stop minting the Binance coin called BUSD, which had a market cap of just over $16.1 billion, or did until Monday before BUSD owners dumped at least $200 million of their holdings. This was almost certainly the first drop in what is likely to be a torrent of withdrawals as BUSD liquidity dries up and traders park their money in another stable coin. Ironically, the biggest beneficiary so far of the regulator's decision to cripple BUSD has been Tether, which is the world's biggest stablecoin issuer, and one that has long had a reputation for opaque business practices and slapdash accounting. By dealing a blow to Binance, the regulators have just inadvertently given a boost to Tether, which arguably has a worse compliance track record than its rival. It's unclear why the government set its sights on Binance's stablecoin, but it feels a matter of time until we hear about regulators or even criminal prosecutors turning the heat up on Tether. In the meantime, Paxos, which has long touted its record for compliance, is also facing a headache in the form of a potential lawsuit by the SEC. According to the agency, stablecoins issued by Paxos are securities. This is a curious conclusion, given that nobody buys stablecoins in the hopes the price will go up, But as Matt Levine noted, U.S. regulators in 2023 are going after crypto in any way they can. The question now is what the regulators' decision to take down the third biggest stablecoin means for the rest of the industry. The price of crypto has dropped in response to the Paxos Binance news, but not significantly, and Bitcoin is still well above $20,000 but there could be other shoes to drop. It remains to be seen, for instance, whether the banking regulators try to kneecap other stablecoins as part of their broader push to drive crypto back to the fringes of finance. If that is the case, it will likely cause broader pain across the industry and also strengthen the hand of traditional banks, which have conveniently just proposed their own version of a stablecoin. Again, that's a blog entry by Jeff John Roberts, and that last paragraph I just read has a link 
to the their own version information about how the banks are approaching stablecoin. I'm going to read that as part of this one. It's a brief article. Stablecoins are under threat, and this new type of crypto could replace them, says J.P. Morgan. This was written by Marco Quiros Guterres and posted on February 13, 2023. One of the most important developments over the past several years in the world of crypto is the stablecoin, a variety of blockchain-enabled tokens tied to the price of fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar. But a new study by the J.P. Morgan's blockchain unit Onyx says that a prospective institution-backed cryptocurrency called a deposit token has the potential to become more popular than stablecoins. With the volatility of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ether, traders often use stablecoins to park their holdings in a stable asset and make cross-border payments. The deposit tokens would cover these uses, but with a blockchain-based coin that is fully integrated into the traditional banking system. Although the tokens are still just a concept, the study said they could be issued by banks and would represent commercial bank money, but in a digital form which would expand its uses. The token form enables new functionality, such as programmability and instant atomic settlements to speed up transactions and automate sophisticated payment operations, according to the study. They would also improve upon some of the setbacks related to stablecoins, including challenges that could come with tackling the multitude of transactions that increased institutional adoption would bring. Because the tokens would be equal to bank money, J.P. Morgan argues that they will have an edge over stablecoins because of regulations that are already in place to support commercial bank deposits. We believe deposit tokens will become a widely used form of money within the digital asset ecosystem, just as commercial bank money in the form of bank deposits makes up over 90% of circulating money today, the bank wrote in the study. Deposit tokens could serve as a regulator-approved alternative to stablecoins, which have come under increased scrutiny by regulators. On Monday, in response to an order from the New York Department of Financial Services, the New York-based crypto company Paxos said it would end its partnership with Binance and stop minting BUSD, the stablecoin it created in collaboration with the crypto exchange. The stablecoin was once the third largest in the world by market cap. The Wall Street Journal reported Sunday that the Securities and Exchange Commission plans to sue Paxos because its BUSD stablecoin is allegedly an unregistered security. This enforcement could put at risk any U.S.-based stablecoins like Circle's USDC, which is second only in market cap to Tether's USDT. Again, that is an article titled, Stablecoins are under threat, and this new type of crypto could replace them, says J.P. Morgan. That's posted to Fortune magazine in their crypto section. This article is posted to Bloomberg. The title is, J.P. Morgan strategists say stock rally will fade. It's written by Farah El-Bahari and posted on February 20th, 2023. 
Stock investors that have turned too optimistic about the economic outlook are setting up for disappointment, according to J.P. Morgan Chase and company strategists. It's too early to say a recession is off the table following the Federal Reserve's aggressive hiking campaign, especially since monetary policy's impact on the economy can have a lag of one to two years, a team led by Mislav Matejka wrote in a note. The central bank is likely to pivot only in response to a much more negative macroeconomic backdrop that markets are currently expecting, they said. Historically, equities do not typically bottom before the Fed is advanced with cutting, and we never saw a low before the Fed has even stopped hiking, the strategists wrote on Monday. The damage has been done and the fallout is likely still ahead of us. Global equities have rallied this year as hopes for a Fed pivot, China's reopening, and Europe's easing energy crisis provided support. But signs that inflation remains a persistent problem in the United States are starting to show once again, weighing on markets. Commentary from hawkish Fed officials has also sparked fears that U.S. rates could peak higher than previously expected. The first quarter is likely to mark the highest point for stocks this year, said Matejka, who turned cautious on the outlook for stocks toward the end of last year after remaining positive for much of 2022. His team expects the rally to fade amid warning signs from key monetary indicators, such as the heavily inverted yield curve and money supply moving lower in Europe and the United States. The J.P. Morgan strategists are not alone in their pessimistic outlook. Morgan Stanley's Michael Wilson ranked number one in last year's Institutional Investor Survey when he correctly predicted the sell-off in stocks, said the bear market rally has morphed into a speculative frenzy based on a Fed pause pivot that is not coming in a note on Sunday. And last week, Bank of America Corp. strategists, led by Michael Hartnett, said the delayed arrival of a U.S. recession will weigh on stocks in the second half of the year. On Monday, Citigroup Incorporated strategists, led by Robert Buckland, said they wouldn't chase the MSCI All-Country World Index higher as it's already trading at the top end of their target range. They also said that most contrarian trades that call for selling last year's winners and buying the losers are set to fizzle out adding that they favor oil stocks to tech, which has soared so far in 2023. And the title of that, J.P. Morgan strategists say stock rally will fade. This article is posted to Forbes. Title is Raising Cocoa Farmers' Income is Pass or Fail for Chocolate Industry. It's written by Shana Harris, a contributor. She says, I'm an industry veteran. I write about the evolving food and ag landscape. This was posted on April 21st, 2022. One of the world's largest chocolate manufacturers on Friday announced a program aimed at doubling the income of 14,000 cocoa farmers by 2030 in two countries where a bulk of the world's cocoa is grown. 
Mars, the chocolate company, has partnered with USAID, the Fair Trade Foundation, and farmer organizations in Ivory Coast and Indonesia to raise farmers' incomes by offering financing, long-term purchasing relationships, revenue diversity, and agroforestry assistance. Last year, Ben & Jerry's announced a similar program targeting 5,000 farmers in Côte d'Ivoire. That's the Ivory Coast in Africa. Between 2010 and 2020, dozens of sustainability commitments were made by the world's top chocolate manufacturers. Most of these programs had one singular focus, to increase cocoa productivity in West Africa. None of these programs achieved the intended results of increasing cocoa productivity and subsequently impacting farmer livelihoods at scale. After a review of 15 Hundred farmer income programs, only three were found to result in a slight increase in farmer income. According to Mars Chief Procurement and Sustainability Officer Barry Parkin, the vast majority of programs have failed. Think about the amount of money and effort that we've put into this over decades, and they've all failed. So you know that tells us this is extremely hard to do, and that's why many smallholder farmers are still living in poverty. The company is now taking a multidimensional approach to achieving a living income in farming communities. Whereas previously they focused on increasing cocoa productivity, programs now will introduce farmer financing, long-term buying relationships, revenue diversification, and agroforestry efforts in a more aggressive attempt to cross the living income threshold for which 100 to 200% increases current income level is needed. The metric we are going to measure is income, Parkin said. We have to get to a living income. That will be a pass or fail for me, he said. West Africa produces most of the world's cocoa. It's also a hotbed of deforestation, which has been a major contributor to climate change. The world's top chocolate manufacturers will not be able to achieve climate goals without addressing deforestation in their supply chains. Ivory Coast produces 42% of the world's cocoa, generated by an estimated 1.2 million small-scale farmers who support one-fifth of the country's population. And rural poverty in the country is actually increasing, moving in opposition to GDP growth. When farmers are poor, they deforest to survive and rely on family and unpaid labor to make ends meet. In other words, the underlying cause of deforestation and child labor in West Africa is poverty. According to Fair Trade, average household income in the Ivory Coast is less than half of a livable income. As a result, as cocoa trees become unproductive, cocoa farmers deforest to cultivate their crops on new land just to survive. What's more, financial flows are opaque. According to the African Union and the United Nations, cocoa is counted among the top 10 illicit financial flows on the continent. This report concluded that despite deep poverty, quote, Africa was a net creditor to the rest of the world, end quote, no doubt linked to its extractive colonial past. Additionally, a complicated system of taxation in West Africa means that just 70% of the international cocoa price actually reaches farmers. 
The Mars Sustainable Cocoa Pilot Program aims to double household income in the Ivory Coast to achieve a livable income by 2030, targeting income growth from $1.09 per person per day to $2.49 per person per day. The effort built on Mars Mint program in India, which increased incomes by 250% and cover about half of the company's mint supply. The program looks beyond cocoa production to a more holistic set of solutions, bolstering non-cocoa income, expanding village savings and loan programs, improving farming techniques, and investing in agroforestry. In addition, Mars will aid with farm financing and provide long-term buying relationships to provide a steady income. And the company says that it will report regularly and transparently on its findings. Taryn Holland of the Fair Trade Foundation, who developed the program framework with Mars and Cooperative Partners, shares, Our starting position is that no two farmers are the same. Previous approaches have used the concept of the average farmer. We're saying there's no such thing as the average farmer. Everyone comes with their own unique context, different vulnerability profile. In order to reach these goals, Mars must be able to trace the flow of cocoa across its supply chain. It reports that 44% of the current cocoa supply chain is traceable to farm, with a goal of 100% by 2025. Over the last year, cocoa prices have been extremely volatile. Farmers in Africa received 20% less in 2021 for their cocoa. Without price protections in place, program gains can be undermined overnight. In the Mars pilot programs, farmers in the Ivory Coast will receive a price floor of $2,400, that's U.S. dollars, The existing government price at export is $2,189.25. This applies to 5,000 farmers in the initial pilot program. Holland went on, over the past year, specifically with COVID, dropping demand for cocoa and all the challenges that we've had around pricing has meant that the fair trade premium has been a really valuable tool in safeguarding and protecting farmer organizations. So why don't cocoa manufacturers pay a floor for all commodity cocoa if achieving a living income is so central to the goals of these programs? Mars declined to explain specifics. Parkin did say, We are happy if prices rise across the industry. We're supportive of that. We're happy to work with the origin governments to come up with ways to do that. In the meantime, we're paying premiums, which help a little bit, but not enough. If we have slightly higher cocoa prices as well, that will be helpful. The Mars Sustainable Cocoa Pilot Program will reach an initial 3.5% of the farmers in their supply chain. The goal is to scale successful interventions as lessons are learned. The Mars Responsible Cocoa Program, which focuses on managing supply chain risk like child labor monitoring and deforestation, covers an estimated 50% of the company's supply chain. It was not disclosed whether these farmers are currently earning a baseline price for their cocoa. So how do these programs scale? Are smallholder cocoa farmers forever destined to poverty? 
Mars and fair trade are bullish that to receive a sustainable living income, multidimensional interventions must take place which address climate vulnerability, income resiliency, and gender dynamics. Parkin concludes, The bottom line is that a smallholder model in West Africa, which is completely on the edge in terms of performance, is not going to survive. It has to get better. It doesn't mean there won't be smallholder cocoa in West Africa, but it will have to be what it looks like at the end of the project. Smallholders that don't come on this transition need to do something else. Again, this was contributed by Shana Harris. She says, I cover the rapidly evolving food landscape. I strive to bring diverse voices and perspectives to readers from the 40 countries where I have lived, traveled, or worked. This article is posted to Fortune. It's titled, Kroger Workers Who Quit Are Getting Texts and Emails from the Company Asking Them to Come Back. This was posted by Steve Molman on February 19, 2023. Former Kroger employees who left the company have been getting some surprising texts and emails. The supermarket operator, the nation's largest by sales, and owner and operator of King Super, for one, wants them back, and it isn't being shy about reaching out and letting them know. That is not generally the way things work, of course. Once you leave a company, chances are slim it will reach out later asking you to return. You might have left your boss in a lurch, for one thing, but the lowest unemployment rate in 53 years means companies are getting creative about filling open positions. Alumni are also a talent source, Tim Massa, chief people officer at the grocer, told the Wall Street Journal. According to him, the Cincinnati-based company has tried hard since the pandemic ended to stay in touch with ex-employees and has seen a significant number of them return. For instance, the company persuaded Tish Spurlock, a former recruiter at Kroger, to come back after reaching out to her, the journal reported. Spurlock had left for a technology firm but returned to Kroger in a new role with a higher salary. Associated Wholesale Grocers, meanwhile, has reached out to ex-employees through LinkedIn and Facebook, according to the journal. The company got more aggressive with rehiring after seeing how well it worked. Returning workers generally hit their targets months before new ones do. Of course, fears of a looming recession remain. Credit card debt in the United States is rising while savings dwindle amid high inflation and headlines about mass layoffs at big-name companies have been inescapable in recent months. But those layoffs have often been concentrated in the tech industry where many companies overhired to meet surging demand during the pandemic. Last month, Amazon began firing 18,000 people. Microsoft let go of 10,000, and Google parent Alphabet slashed 12,000 jobs. That followed Facebook owner Meta's cutting 11,000 workers in November. Meta is widely expected to cut more jobs in the near future as part of its year of efficiency, quote-unquote. Last year, more than 150,000 tech workers were laid off, according to tracking website layoffs.fyi. 
but many other tech companies are still hiring, and laid-off tech workers have generally not stayed unemployed for long. Thank you for joining us today for Financial News. My name is Michael Amy.